We're in chapter 9 in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and I want to pick up with verse 14, if uh, if we could. We To kind of remember, it, it seems like a long time ago because it was three weeks ago <laughs> with uh, my kids being here and everything. The context is um, Jesus is... He's beginning to experience, as we talked a little bit last week, or two weeks, three weeks ago, he's beginning to experience more and more opposition. And it's largely from the spiritual leadership uh, that are that we're starting to see the opposition. And verse 14 through verse uh, 29 is another example of this. And so as you read with me, follow with me as I read it, and when they came to the disciples, um, now what had... Um, happened previous to this as they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had been transfigured. Uh, a number of things had occurred as a result of this. Uh, the disciples, this would be the other nine, the three that had gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The other nine, Jesus came to the disciples. They saw a great crown around them and the scribes arguing with them. And uh, as I explained before, the scribes are Pharisees their primary responsibility is to copy the Old Testament text and teach the Old Testament text to the people. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And so the argument, the nature of the argument, we don't know. We'll find out a little bit in a minute. But this is apparently a very heated argument. And Jesus asked that question. Someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Uh, So he cannot speak, and the spirit means a demonic spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Very important statement. And he answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now let me stop there for just a minute. The key word in the Lord's response is faithless. I hope all your translations have it that way. Oh, faithless generation. Um, what, What do you think Jesus means by that? And whom is he speaking to? The crowds? Or the nine disciples? I would say the nine in yeah. this case. The nine disciples. So what does he mean, O oh, faithless generation? Not believing. Not believing. Uh, did they believe in Jesus? Yes, the nine. Did they believe he was the Messiah? Well, at least intellectually, <laughs> yes. But... He had given them the authority. He had given them the right and responsibility to cast out demons. You have to go back several chapters in our study, but he had done that. And so here was an opportunity for them to exercise that faith, exercise that authority. But what did the crowd say? They were not able. Do you think they even tried? I think maybe they just didn't realize they, they didn't have the confidence that they could do it. Well, I don't think they would say they weren't able if they didn't try. Yeah, so there's a futility here. Whether what they did, how they did it, what they said, whatever it is, it didn't work. And so the crowds are concluding they are not able. 
So for you and me, reading this 2,000 years later, were they able to do it? Yes. Jesus had given them the authority to do it. Again, you go back several chapters. But Jesus is saying, you lack the faith. So this is a rebuke of them. Then they were doubting. Yeah, and I mean, there is a doubt. There's an un, unwillingness to carry through on what Jesus had told them and given them the authority to do, but they're lacking the faith. And it's always the key. I've said this, but I think I said it here in the class. If, if there was one, one objective Christ had with the 12 as he spent three years with them, it was to teach them faith, another way of putting that, teach them to trust him. And so they're progressively learning, progressively understanding. And so Jesus, when he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I mean, this is a rebuke of them. And it's to get them to focus on the key issue. Trust me. Put your faith in me. And you will be able to do what I am asking you to do. They're not doing that. So Jesus asks that the, the boy be brought, verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when, he, when the spirit saw him, and again, the spirit there is an evil spirit. It's a demon. Immediately, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, that's just a horrible image. In, in my mind, I try to envision that. This would be a horrible thing to witness that this is all of the evidence of this young boy being demon-possessed. And verse 21, And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. That's an infinitive. It's a very important infinitive. It's a very important purpose. Demons, let's even talk about the head of the demon, Satan, seek to distort and destroy God's image in humanity. Remember, you've heard me talk about this, and we, we've discussed this before. We are unique in God's creation. We're created in the image of God. We resemble him, we represent him. Satan is attacking the image bearers of God. And what he's done to this boy through this demon, through this evil spirit, is to distort demean, destroy, debilitate an image bearer of God. And so this child, fairly young child, it's this, I mean, convulsed, fell to the ground, foaming at the mouth, and his father tells Jesus he even has cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. What did Jesus say to the nine? You faithless generation. What is he saying to the Father? All things are possible for one who believes. And when Jesus saw that a crowd running, came running together, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Doubt. Yes. 
I believe, but I have doubt. So help my unbelief. Um, honestly, this, this is a marvelous, the statement of this, this father is a marvelous statement of where you and I often are in our lives. We believe, and we put our faith in Christ. We are, we are one of his children and all of the, the marvelous things that describe our relationship with God. But we also are at times plagued with doubt. Or in, in, in a very real sense, we're saying, okay, Lord, this is something you can't handle. This is too big. I mean, I'm making this up. But, so the Father is saying, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. There's a residue of doubt, residue of questions, whatever all is in back of his statement. Because Jesus has said the issue is faith. As we read in the previous verse, all things are possible, one who believes. The issue is faith. He rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. Now he's saying to the Father, in effect, I can do what you want me to do for your son. Do you believe that? Where is your faith? Put it another way. What is the object of your faith? What do you really believe I can do? Help my unbelief. And immediately, immediately, the Father helped my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it, meaning the evil spirit came out. The boy was like a corpse. That's a simile. He wasn't a corpse. He was like a corpse, presumably lying there lifeless momentarily. Most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Um, let's, let's think about that comment by the Lord. Uh, there, there's a, a lot of bunny trails I could go down with this, but this kind, okay, this demon, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Does that mean they hadn't prayed? Does that mean they hadn't? I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine that whatever they were doing with this young, uh, this young child while Jesus was still up in the Mount of Transfiguration, that the prayer was not involved. Um, cannot come out with anything but prayer. But in back of prayer is faith. <clears throat> Let's kind of think of the situation here a little bit longer, even a little more deeply. The... The disciples have been with Jesus. Where we are in the life of Jesus, this is in his second, maybe starting to transition into his third year of public ministry. First year of ministry is in Judea, second and third year in Galilee. We know he's in Galilee. So they've been with him for about two years, give or take a few months. They've seen him do incredible things. But what they are learning is to do things that he wants them to do with the authority he's given them and and with the faith that they need to exercise that authority. But Jesus is with them. Jesus' presence is always with them. Jesus' power is always available to them. 
Is that always going to be true? No. You know, they're still trying to process and grapple with all the stuff that Jesus is telling them. But in about a year, or a little over a year, Jesus is going to die, he's going to be resurrected, he's going to go back to the Father. Then what? Then they're on their own. Then they're on their own. So what is Jesus, and I've said, I said it earlier today, what is Jesus primarily wanting them to learn? The sufficiency of trusting in him. The sufficiency of putting their faith in him. Because when he goes back to the Father, and the book of Acts tells us this, they're going to continue doing messianic miracles. I mean, you, you read those early chapters, the incredible things they do, even in Paul's ministry, the incredible things they do. So they must learn to live and work and exercise the faith and trust in Jesus that is expressed primarily at at the beginning through prayer. And so that's what Jesus is saying to them. Your faith and trust in me, you must learn that. You must exercise that. You must practice that. And it begins with prayer. Prayer is conversation with God. It's talking to God with faith. So you have in this narrative that we just finished reading, you have multiple examples of faith or lack of faith. It begins with the nine. The crowds say, they're not able to do anything for this boy. Jesus rebukes them for lack of faith. Then you have the father who believes, he says, if you have enough compassion on my son, you can help us. Jesus said, you believe? I believe, but help my unbelief. And so it's, it's a, it is a narrative about faith. And faith begins by putting your faith and trust in Christ, the person of Christ, that when he is away from you, begins with prayer. And the 12 had to learn that. Jesus is going to leave them. They're still trying to grapple with what all that means, but he's going to leave them. And it is their faith and trust in Christ that's going to enable them to do what he wants them to do. If he would have gone back to the Father at this point, they're not ready. So he, Jesus is interested in continuing to develop their faith in him, just like he's continuing to develop your faith in him and my faith in him. So 10 or 11 years now, we're still working on it. Yeah, yeah. It's been longer for me, and he's still working oh, yeah. on me. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you know, our grandkids were with us, and you know, they're seven and three, so they they haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. But that is for me and my wife. That is our in the morning. That is our primary prayer as we begin our prayer time together. That the Lord would bring them to salvation. And you know, because that, and you all have children or grandchildren. You know what I'm talking about. That is just. You want that to happen, but you can't coerce it. You can't force it. You can't make them. You can't stick a gun to their head. You can't. There's nothing they must choose to follow Christ. And so it's you have to trust them. They live in England. That's from where we live. That's almost 5,000 miles away. But prayer transcends that distance, doesn't it? It's a neat way to pray for them, uh, pray for their salvation. Yeah. Uh, we have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Mm. All of them that sometimes have some kind of problems, you know, oh, yeah. we want to help oh, them, but yeah. 
maybe the basics would be to pray for their salvation. Well, that certainly would be the most important thing to do for our kids and grandkids. So, it, uh, in a way, I guess I'm done with what I want to comment on. You, you, you get the main point of this passage, tremendous passage on faith, in lots of different categories of people. So it's, it's just me. All right, let's continue then in the next paragraph, verse 30 and 30 through 32. Then went on from there and passed through Galilee. Uh, you know, you, as you know, Jesus is in Galilee. That's in the north. Galilee's in the north. Samaria's in the center. Judea's in the south. Jesus ministered in Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. We're afraid to ask, but we're afraid to ask him. All right, now, let's probe this a little bit. But they did not understand the saying. Now, the word understand there, obviously they heard his words. And they understood his words. What are they not getting? The term understand there really focuses on their perception their understanding of who Messiah is and what Messiah is to do. <coughs> now listen, their idea, and we know this from other parts, their idea of Messiah was kind of like a liberator who would free them from the oppression of Rome and kind of like a political figure and so on. And Jesus is saying, that is going to happen. It's all wrapped around my second coming. But in my first coming, I have to die. I have to go to the cross. I have to be resurrected. And I will send back to the Father. And that's all in the Old Testament prophecies. But these guys aren't prophets. So what they're not understanding is their perception. Jesus is challenging their perception. Their expectations and perceptions of Messiah must change. And that's what Mark is saying here. They are not really... They're not really getting the context and and role and function of Messiah in his first advent. His second advent, he will be the political liberator. He will set up his kingdom. He will establish his rule over planet Earth, but not in his first advent. And that's what they just, they can't break all that down. And so, and when it says they're afraid to ask, it's just really interesting. They're... They're trying to grapple with, process everything that Jesus is saying. But it's almost they can't even frame a question to ask Jesus to clarify what he's saying. It's like, we hear your words, Jesus, but we really don't understand what you're saying. I mean, they hear his words, but they really don't understand what he's saying in the context of him being the Messiah. You are not meeting our expectations. What are you talking about? That's kind of their response. But I've told you before, the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. He will tell them this again and again and again. Now, to illustrate that they really don't get what he's saying, look at the next paragraph. And they came to Capernaum. Now, I told you before, and you can see it on the map on page 5. That's on the North Shore. That's Jesus' home base of operations. And when he was in the house, 
more than likely Peter's house. It's a fairly large house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way as they're traveling toward Capernaum? But they were silent. They wouldn't tell Jesus. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. intentionally stopping there who was the greatest I mean just Jesus has just been telling them this stuff he's rebuked them for the lack of faith and now he's telling them I'm going to go to the cross I'm going to die etc and I understand it they don't even know how to ask a question so now as they're leaving heading to Capernaum they're talking and I'm saying who's the greatest you talk about them not understanding They understand his words, but not understanding. They're focusing on themselves. Who who is the greatest of the disciples? Uh, I'll just pretend. I kind of think Peter might have said, well, it's obvious I am. After all, I'm the first pope. You know, making that up. But, you know. Or, or maybe, maybe maybe John would have said, no, wait a minute. I'm the one that Jesus loves. And then Andrew said, oh, wait a minute, Peter. I'm the one who brought you to Jesus in the first place. You can't be. Something like that. And if you go to Matthew's account of this, it is is James. It is, excuse me, it's Peter. It's John. It's James. These are the guys that are really fomenting this discussion. And if I just... If, if I were Jesus, and I'm not, but if I were Jesus, I would just be shaking my head. I don't believe it. After all, I've just said to them, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. But Jesus senses this, senses a teachable moment. Jesus always is in control. And so he teaches them something. Look at verse 35. And he sat down, called the 12, and he said, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and a servant of all. A major proposition of God's word. Greatness is servanthood. The leadership model of the Bible is servant leadership. And so Christ is saying here, greatness is marked by servanthood. Now, he could have used himself as an example of that. He doesn't. He takes a child. Now, he's in Peter's house. This could be one of Peter's children. We know Peter was married. The Bible is silent whether he had children or not. But but it's fascinating how... If this is one of Peter's children or not, it doesn't matter. But he takes a child. And the word for child there in the original language is a young child. This isn't a teenager. This is a young child. And put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So Jesus is doing two things here. He's using a child as an illustration of what he's saying. 
But the child is not only an illustration of a servant kind of spirit, but also an illustration of faith. Childlike faith. So whoever receives, whoever welcomes a child like this, receives me. You, you receive a child, and, and receive there, the word means to welcome, to embrace. That's, that's the kind of expression of faith I'm looking for. You receive me. And to receive me, receive the Father. That's what he means, the one who sent me. So this, this, this extraordinary statement by, by the Lord Jesus is to destroy, to harm a faith, the faith of a child. Is, is a horrible thing to do. But to build up a faith of the child, to welcome the faith of a child, is like welcoming and embracing me by faith. So Jesus is doing two things here in this final part of this, of this paragraph. Um, and it leads Jesus to say something in the next paragraph, which is almost confrontational. It's very provocative. Anyone, look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gave you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by, new, by no means lose his reward. So can't you just picture, let's just pretend it's Peter. John's the one who, who's speaking here. But uh, he says, uh, you know, Rabbi, um, as we were... In the other side of Capernaum, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. But we stopped him because he's not following us. Why does Jesus rebuke this? Because he says, don't stop him. The issue is not the use of Jesus' name. The issue is not an exclusivism. I'm using a word we use in the 21st century. It's not we are an elite group and only our group can do this. If somebody is combating evil, they're with us. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? If someone is combating evil, they're a part of us. But John says they're not part of our inner circle of 12. Jesus says that's irrelevant. If they are combating evil, they're a part of it. And that's that statement in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. <laughs> There's really no room for neutrality. You're either for Jesus and what he stands for or you're against him. But if someone who is not against us, and these folks, who we don't know anything about them, we don't know anything about the context, but whoever it is that's casting out these demons, Jesus says, they're with us. They're doing the same thing we want to do. 
They're combating evil. They're combating the evil one. So there's, 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 there's room for lots of expressions of the priorities of what Jesus stood for and today stands for. Is there, maybe opening a Pandora's box here, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. Is there sort of an exclusivism in modern day evangelicalism in America, in the 21st century, in Omaha, Nebraska? He said he thinks there is. Would everybody agree with that? <laughs> I think we're the good guys. The other people are the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Everybody thinks they have the corner on the truth. Yeah, and, and that the way we do it is the only right way to do it. Right. And that is, that's dangerous. Um, and it certainly is, um, it certainly can be a part of of attitudes, especially uh, uh, among some in American evangelicalism in, in, uh, in our time. And I think we have to be very, very careful there. Um, I was asked a question a couple of uh, months ago, and it was a good question. It caused me to think a little bit more. They, the question was, isn't it awful over the history of the church, and particularly the last 150 years, that there have been so many denominations that have developed. You know, we're, the, the Jesus in John 17 prays for unity. And, you know, I, I have to talk about what he meant by that, but what you see in, like, the American church, for example, but you just see lots and lots and lots of denominations, lots and lots of churches, each one kind of unique. And I, at first, I wanted to agree with them, and yes, that's horrible. But as I thought more about it, I thought, well... God is certainly in control of all things, but one of the interesting things that's been a part of all of these different expressions of Christianity and all the different denominational groups and so on is a church that has a particular characteristic to it, a particular temperament and a particular set of nuances to it, attracts certain people. But another church with a set of nuances and particular character attracts another group of people. And then other churches, you know what I'm saying? And it's, as I've thought about I've looked at Omaha, Nebraska. I know the churches of Omaha fairly well because of what I used to do and so on. And, and I, as I was saying, you know, I thought that is really true. Some churches that have a you know, very robust, contemporary worship uh, set of characteristics and lots of loud music and so on, that attracts one group of people. It doesn't particularly attract me and my wife. And the way in which a pastor and the staff will address and talk about the things of God and, and preach and teach will be attractive to one group, but maybe not to one. So in many ways, the, the expressions of Christianity, and I'm talking about genuine biblical, I'm not talking about heretical teaching, that's not what I'm talking about genuine biblical Christianity. God uses that to build his church. And this is what Jesus is challenging here. A rigorous exclusivism that shuts other people out who are doing things I want them to do. Jesus says, guys, 
if they're not against us, they're for us. That's a really important verse. So he's, again, he's rebuking John and Peter and all the others who are saying, that was horrible those guys were doing that. They're not part of our group. They shouldn't be doing that in your name. Jesus says, hold it. <laughs> if they're not against us, we got a lot of people against us, scribes are against us, Pharisees are against us, Sadducees are against us. They're all against us. But these guys aren't against us. They're for us. And Jesus is saying, they will be a part of the coming kingdom. I have some friends that are very, very much against the Pentecostal charismatic movement. I mean, adamantly so. It's, for them, it's a test of faith. And I said, you know, this one guy, he's a good friend, so I can be somewhat humorous with him. I said, you know, one of the things that I think is going to happen is these people are going to be in eternity with you. They're going to be in heaven. They put their faith in Christ. They may not worship the way you do. They may think that speaking in tongues is really important. But you're going to spend eternity. Maybe you should start to get used to spending eternity with them now. You don't have to worship like they do. You don't have, but they believe in salvation by faith in Christ. This church, Christ Community Church, I don't know how many of you have lived here very long, but Christ Community Church used to be downtown. And this church split over the issue of speaking in tongues, primarily. And Christ Community Church was formed, and then another church that had different names, it was called Trinity Interdenominational, I think. I think that was its name, but Trinity Church Out West. I forget what it's called now. LifeGate. LifeGate. But that, that was an example of a very large, robust church that met that their building was downtown before they all moved. But they split over that issue. It wasn't over salvation. It wasn't over putting your faith in Christ. It wasn't over the second coming of Christ. It was over primarily the issue of speaking in tongues. And it, as, I, as I learned about all that when I moved to Omaha and so on, I thought, you know, there's an interesting example. They split over an issue. But both developed into large, strong, robust churches, differing over several issues. And they both attracted certain groups of people. And it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting dynamic of what happens, has happened to the church over the years. The one who's against, not against us is for us. There is no room for neutrality. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. All right. Well, I am probably going to stop here because I have to get to another meeting and I have to be there at 1.15. And now I have a farther distance to go and I've got to pack up this computer and make sure everything's shut off. Would that be all right if I stop a little earlier? I have no idea what we're going to do next week. We'll see what the message says when it comes out. Yeah, so whatever whatever it is, just watch your emails. And, you know, before you head for this building, check your email to make sure it hasn't changed. So I don't quite know what we're doing, what we're going to be doing here with this. But we'll, we'll let the guys work it out and the technology of it. All right? I want to pray for uh, Lyle and uh, Richard, right? Uh, both of those, those men. Um, so for Lyle, uh, sometimes there's surgery with that, but that's not an option for him. I don't know. He's get he gets shots. In, oh, I see. Okay, I see. Okay, I know. I've heard that too. Okay. Every once in a while, he he had to miss the 
Oh my goodness, my goodness. I am so sorry to hear that. That is really. He's been struggling with it for ever since he's been coming. Oh, is that right? So this is. Okay. Yes. It's kind of picked up its pace now. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. And what Richard, what's the issue with him? Yeah, is, I don't know what Richard But he, he he's, he's at the VA hospital. He's at risk for catching COVID, too. Uh, okay. Know, I don't know the terminology. For okay, that. that's, no, that's fine. But they've given but, him boosters already. So, but he was going to the VA hospital, you said. Uh, he's just going down for an appointment. Okay. Father, we're thankful for our study in the Word of God. It was a bit of a of a frustrating beginning and uh, I'm not sure what all is going on here but um, we all trust all that to you it is good we could meet uh, it was cut short at the beginning and I need to cut short here so I can get to the next uh, next uh, study so I just uh, commit all this to you thank you for the important takeaway of today is faith and trust what Jesus said to the nine what Jesus said to that father and what Jesus did is he used the example of a child it is childlike dependence, childlike faith that honors Jesus and honors the Father who sent him. Help us to be strong men of faith who trust you, who believe you. Help to deal with our doubts and our questions in a way that's honoring to you. Lord, I do remember Lyle this morning. Uh, just trust him to you. I did not realize it was that severe. So, Lord, we, we commit him to you. I pray for uh, these treatments, these shots. Um, just, uh, it, it certainly sounds as if it's not going to get better. So Lord, may your comfort be real in his life. May your grace be energizing in his life and just sustain him by that grace. And pray for Richard, too, as he has this appointment and whatever exactly is going on there. We certainly pray that he would be protected and would not get COVID and the situation that he's in. We pray for Woody as he has, he, he said, his appointment next week. So, Lord, I trust these men to you as we go our separate ways. Enable us to represent you well, we pray in Jesus' name.